Let's pray together. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, we proclaim uh, our, our trust in you, in your Son, in the Holy Spirit whom you give us. Um, and it is our desire, uh, and it is your promise, that you will draw us into the story we just uh, recited. And so we ask that you will do that very powerfully, that your Holy Spirit will be very active in our hearts, giving us faith that we cannot generate ourselves, and, and granting us a, a taste of that real and true power that uh, unites us with your Son in joy and intimacy and in glory. Grant that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, so please, if you would, uh, turn back to page 9. It's helpful to have that 2 Corinthians reading in front of you. Um, we have uh, kind of been uh, skipping along through 2 Corinthians because that's what the lectionary does. And so in this summer, we're kind of following along the, um, the uh, lectionary reading, which is just the, the Anglican Bible reading plan for Sundays. Um, and to this morning, uh, we get to talk about how it is that Jesus transforms his church. Uh, another way to say that is this, we get to talk, and, and I, I'm going to kind of say this in a big way, and then I'll explain it, okay? Um, we get to talk about how it is that the grace of Jesus, what's that, Jim? We'll talk about it in a minute. The power of Jesus, we'll talk about that too, how it is that the grace of Jesus, the power of Jesus reaches down into the soul of a church, reaches down into the soul of every single Christian, and binds our hearts to Jesus so strongly and so intimately and so joyfully that we begin to taste, here's where it gets big, we get to taste the joy of heaven even while we're here uh, still on earth. Now, that's a big statement. Uh, and uh, it may even, in fact, if you, if you understand what it is that I just said, which you may not, that's fine. But if, if you understand, then it, it may take you back a little bit, which is, which is good. But here's why I put it that way. It is dangerously easy to settle for a kind of powerless Christianity. Uh, it is dangerously easy to settle for a Christianity that outwardly looks kind of plausible, maybe respectable. Um, we might be orthodox in our doctrine. Um, we might do lots of very, very good things. We may even have powerful worship experiences. But nevertheless, despite all that, it is possible to never deeply taste what it is that the Apostle Paul describes in our reading as uh, the power of Christ in verse 9. Um, Paul talks about this in a number of places. In, in uh, 2 Timothy, Paul talks about um, that it's possible to have what he calls a form of godliness, but a form of godliness that denies the power of the gospel. And in the context, in that context, in, in 2 Timothy, what he means is that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you can have a form of godliness, but that you nevertheless remain deeply unchanged by the gospel, and we never really grow up and reflect Jesus well. Um, and in that context, when we have a form of godliness, but we deny its power, what happens is that our hearts remain hard rather than becoming increasingly soft, um, that our hearts are uh, self-serving rather than increasingly uh, 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 self-sacrificing. Um, and, 
and we end up remaining just kind of primarily thinking about ourselves rather than mostly about Jesus and his people. And it's a type of, of hypocritical religion, and, and Paul just wants nothing to do with this. Now, why am I saying all this? Here's why. I'm saying this because our epistle reading from 2 Corinthians gives us a special gift. And the special gift that our passage gives us today is that we get to watch <clears throat> excuse me, the Apostle Paul tell a little bit of his own story. A little bit of his own story about how Jesus drew Paul deeper into that experience of the transforming power of Christ. And so our camera needs to kind of stay on Paul and we'll watch how he does this. Now, here at Emmanuel, um, one of the things I love about this church most is that uh, I, I, I'm very confident in the Lord that, that he has given us wonderful tastes of his transforming power. One of the best job, parts of my job is that I get to see that unfold in, in some of our lives. It's wonderful. But I also get to say that Emmanuel, this passage, uh, provokes us to conclude that, that Jesus has more for us and that there's a danger. Um, we must stay very hungry as a church, very thirsty, almost greedy for a power of Jesus Christ that transforms. So what we're going to do is we're going to go into this reading. We're going to watch Paul as the Lord brings Paul into a deeper experience of power and, uh, and we'll ask the Lord to do that same thing in us. Okay? Well, that's what we're doing. Let, let, let's look at the reading. Let's orient you to the reading just a little bit. Um, this is the end of uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, Paul has a long history with the church at the city of Corinth, which is in southern Greece. And um, he, had, he had kind of uh, built this church up, and then he had left and gone on to do some other things. But then after he left, the church kind of went off the rails. They went off the rails for a variety of reasons, but one of the things that happened is that a group of other religious teachers, other clergy, came in and started teaching wonky things. Um, I found out the other day, um, there was a, a study or something that, that said that, um, generally speaking, uh, uh, people trust clergy about as much as they trust politicians, which I thought to myself, that's what they think of me. Um, which was humbling. But there's good reason for that because there's a long history of clergy being jerks. And these were jerks. Um, and uh, we don't know all the details, but we do know that these uh, teachers came in and they talked a lot about power. And they talked a lot about strength and competency and cleverness and effectiveness. And what they did is they undermined Paul's, uh, the, the relationship of the church with Paul and the church's confidence in their founding leader, Paul. They undermined that by coming in and saying something like, listen, Paul's great. Isn't Paul great? Paul's great. But we can move beyond. We can do better. And we're here for you, Corinthians. And we can do better. And at least part of the problem with these teachers is that they were infatuated with a, uh, a power that they could generate from within themselves. So two chapters before this, Paul says, chapter 10, that these, these leaders are always commending themselves and comparing, them to other, comparing themselves to other people. And they loved this kind of self-generated prowess that they could think very highly of themselves about. Now, obviously, they were conceited, right? 
And it's easy, I think, isn't it? It's easy for us to, um, you see somebody that's conceited, particularly when that person is not you. Um, you, can, you look at somebody else that's conceited and you go, don't you hate conceited people? Um, and and we, do, we do that all the time, right? We, we do that with, with people that we interact with. We do that with leaders uh, that we kind of look from afar and we kind of say, oh, they're always talking about themselves and how great they are. But then, but then, we should be careful about that, right? Because, because don't we all of us, don't we all of us desperately desire to be known as somebody who's filled with prowess and competence and effectiveness and all of those sorts of things. And so we, we run to our whatever it is, our TED Talk or whatever it is, so we can look at people that we think really have it so that we can maybe have it too. There's something in us we love, don't we? We love our self-generated strength. And there's a way in which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, all of us should pursue excellence. Okay, so everything I'm about ready to say, please don't conclude that we shouldn't pursue excellence in life. Mediocrity is often the byproduct of the sinful laziness. That's not the point. The point is this. The power of Christ the power that is at the animating center of Christianity, the power that gives life to real transformation in the Christian life is not a power that we can generate ourselves. And if we rely, trust, depend upon ourselves and our competence, strength, skill, abilities, in the way that we often do in other areas of our lives, if we rely on those areas when it comes to uh, our walk with Jesus Christ, then very often we will end up with a form of godliness that denies its power. Even while we'll be conceited about how far we think we've come with Christ. Now, keep all of this in mind and go back to Paul. Go back to this reading. Because we are, um, this reading is right in the middle of, and this is going to sound odd because it is odd, um, Paul's kind of in a boasting battle between him and these these other teachers. And it's almost like he's playing with these other teachers. He says, listen, he kind of says this. He goes, listen, um, <clears throat> you guys are impressed with yourselves, you other teachers. Um, well, what do you say we, com we compare resumes? Yeah? And so in, in the chapter just before this, he says, hey, are, are you Israelites? Hey, check it out. So am I. Are you, um, are you children of Abraham? So am I. What have you done? I, I've done that too. But then... He says, and if you want to talk about power, I can play that game too. Look at verse 2. Paul says, let's just say, I know a guy. He says, I know a man. Paul's talking about himself, but he's, he's just kind of playing around here. He goes, I know a guy in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, what happens right now is he is besting his opponents at their own game. And he says, listen, nobody can match me for experience of power and for spiritual experiences. And Paul says, in fact, I have this experience that is so powerful, I really have a hard time describing it. Um, he says, one way or another, I sort of went to heaven. 
In one way or another, I don't know exactly how it happened, but um, I saw things that humans either cannot describe because they don't have the capacity to describe it or that he is not allowed to describe it. But somehow he had a remarkable spiritual experience, which, you know, is pretty good. Now, let me ask you a question, Emmanuel. Consider this remarkable mystical experience that Paul experienced. Do you think that a power like that is the best power on offer in the Christian life? Because we might conclude that Paul wants us all to experience something like he experienced. And you can look down through the history of the church, and in fact, we could go around the room right now, and some of us have had little tastes of something a little vaguely similar to what it is that Paul experienced, not to the degree, but... Christians have, from time to time, remarkable spiritual experiences and mystical, ecstatic experiences. And we might conclude from this that, that, that this is the power that Jesus wants to give us. Now, watch this. Paul's mystical experience, his spiritual experience, was a good thing. It was a very good thing, but it was not the main thing. His spiritual experience was a station on the way, but it was not the final destination. There was a deeper power than even mystical visions. And in the Christian life, not everybody experiences mystical visions and these spiritual uh, uh, experiences. But, but every single Christian must know at least something of this deeper power. But, but, but here's the thing, and, the, and, and this is the really difficult thing. The path to that deeper power in the Christian life, the power of Christ that Paul is going to talk about, that path always runs through weakness. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now keep your eye on that verse because Paul says um, twice, to keep me from being conceited. So what we know is that whatever Jesus was trying to accomplish here, part of it was he was trying to save Paul from a self-reliance. He was trying to save Paul from being satisfied with a power and a strength that was vested within him. He was a remarkable guy. He could have rested in his own strength, but Jesus wants to save him from that. And so Jesus allows, and the word is stronger, gave this thorn in the flesh. And it's a very mysterious thing. You should be careful here. We don't know what this thorn in his flesh was. Um, but we do know that it hurt. We do know that it wasn't pleasant. We do know that it included some sort of spiritual battle. Maybe a little bit like, do you remember um, Jesus' temptation? The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert to engage in this battle. Maybe something like that. We don't know the specifics. But we do know that it made Paul feel weak. Here's this great man, but he felt weak. And most importantly, look at where it drove him. 
Did it drive him to self-reliance? Did it drive him to, to pull himself up by his bootstraps? And No. It drove him to Jesus. And this is where the gift comes. Verse 8. Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now just consider that, three times. Three times Paul says, take it away. You ever felt like God said no? I used to think that Jesus said no. Here, he, did, he doesn't actually. That, that was a misreading. Look, look, look back. Jesus doesn't say no. What Jesus says is, my grace is sufficient for you. That is to say, uh, Jesus says, no, I'm going to, it's not that I say no, it's that I'm saying, I'm going to give you a different gift. I'm going to give you a better gift. Now, that word grace, um, usually we think of grace uh, as kind of mercy and forgiveness, God not giving us what it is that we deserve, something like that. But grace has a, has a deeper and richer meaning too. Grace also means Jesus' active power through the Holy Spirit to reach within us and change the orientations of our hearts and to change who we are from the inside out, not by activity on the outside that forms us on the inside, that happens, but this is grace that reaches down into the heart and transforms us from the inside out. It's Jesus' active presence through his Holy Spirit but it's a power that meets us in the midst of our felt weakness. So Jesus says, my grace, this power that's going to reach into your soul, is sufficient. The word sufficient, usually, sometimes we mean, we can imagine that means just barely enough to cope. Just, it's sufficient. Ooh, barely. But that's not the implication here. The idea is that it's sufficient to meet the, the end for which it was given. That is, it is sufficient enough to satisfy. And you'll notice that after he says this in the text, you can look at it later, he mentions glad, joy, a number of times. Jesus is saying, my grace is sufficient to bring you to a joy that outweighs everything else. And then he says that this power, this grace, is, so to speak, amplified almost by our experience of weakness. See, this power that Jesus gives us is a different power from the power that enabled Paul to have this mystical experience. It was a different power that um, gave Paul remarkable spiritual gifts and abilities to do remarkable things. Um, this power that Jesus gives can, uh, can, can give life to those other experiences, but it's, this is a deeper thing. This power is the power of the Holy Spirit that binds us to Jesus in vivid, tasted trust. Love, loyalty, affection, intimacy. Why do you say that, Jim? I say that because of the way Paul uses the word power elsewhere. In Ephesians, in the middle of Ephesians chapter 3, there's this prayer that we know, and Paul talks about power, and in that you can see what that power is. Um, Paul says, uh, I kneel before the Father from whom every... Uh, family in heaven and earth is named, that out of the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the spirit in your inner being giving power. 
And that power, the effect of that power, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you may have power to grasp with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses our capacity to understand it. It's a power that unites us to Jesus in intimacy, love, loyalty, joy. And it's all through the Bible. Um, Jesus in John's gospel says, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you're the branches, you got to stay in the vine. This is the power that binds branches to vines and keeps them connected. And it's the power, I could argue this, but I, I, I won't give, you can ask me about it later. It's the power that satisfies the saints in heaven. The joy of heaven will be when God dwells with God's people in closeness and intimacy and joy with one another. And this is a taste of that. So that in a remarkable way, in the mystical experience, Paul viewed something of heaven. But in the experience of weakness and Jesus' sufficient grace and power to him, he tasted its joy. And we could go on. It's, it's the kind of power that enables somebody like Job in the Old Testament who goes through terrible suffering to still remarkably proclaim, I know my Redeemer lives. In the midst of this, in the midst of all the pain that I don't understand, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand upon the earth, and though my flesh should be destroyed, yet with my eyes I shall see God. And then at the end of the book of Job, when it's all over, he says, I, I saw God. Now, you can't work that up. That doesn't work. You can't work it up. It's got to come as a gift from Jesus. And it comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And that's why weakness becomes so important. Why do I say weakness is important? I say it for this reason. Because when we feel strong in ourselves, we almost never deeply rely on Jesus. Because everything in us wants to rely on ourselves. We'd rather rely on ourselves. We think that that's safer. It's not, but we think it is. On the other hand, when we feel weak, and when life kicks us around a little bit, that's when we kneel before Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need you. And all through the Bible, it's the Lord's greatest outpouring of power is very often, time and again, when God's people are weak. When did God rescue Israel from Egypt? When it was, when, was it when they were just doing really, really well? No, they were slaves. When did God raise up David? Was it when they were doing really, really well? It was when they were trembling before Goliath. Skip to the New Testament. We don't have to. We could give a lot of other examples, but skip to the New Testament. When did God pour out his spirit on Pentecost, like Brooke reminded us of? God pours out his spirit in Pentecost when the disciples are doing nothing but sitting in a room praying, they don't know. They had been commissioned, but they didn't have any capacity to pull off the commission. That's when the God's power came. But above all, and you know this, I hope if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that the greatest outpouring of God's power came when God himself in Jesus Christ embraced weakness. When he saw that the path to his own glory ran through weakness and he became a servant and became obedient to the point of death, death upon the cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And it was then when God 
in Christ embraced weakness that his power of forgiveness is given to every one of us who trusts in him. See, it's not only our path. It's God's path, too, in Christ. And this is why, because Jesus' power is always made perfect in weakness, this is why Paul boasts not about his vision. I knew a guy. But he'll boast about his weakness. Verse 9. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, Eric Mason is a uh, pastor down in Philadelphia. He says this. um, God does not have favorites, but God does have intimates. And God will use our weakness to keep us intimate with him. So Emmanuel, that's God's plan for our weakness. Now what sort of weakness, Jim, does God use? All of them? Well, you should expect that God will use different kinds of weaknesses in the different seasons of your life. When you first become a Christian, the first weakness that become, can become a kind of sanctified weakness is, is our awareness of our moral weakness. When we come to Christ and, and we realize that, we, that we're never going to be able to do good, enough good deeds to overturn our, our sin, we're, we're not going to be able to do anything like that, and so we come to Jesus Christ saying, Jesus, I, I have... Um, I've perpetrated sin, and I am, uh, I am under the weight of sin, and there's no getting around it, and I am weak in the midst of my guilt. And then we come to Jesus, and then the first taste we have of Jesus' unmatched power is when we see him from the cross saying, Father, forgive that one. And then all of a sudden, all our sins are put away, and we realize that God, who was previously someone to be feared, somebody far off, somebody to run from, now becomes our Father, and we are adopted, and we cry out, Abba, Father. That's the first taste through our moral, our sense of moral weakness. And that never relieves us. That's always a continuous part of the Christian life. But later in the Christian life, we also experience all kinds of other weaknesses. Sometimes it's suffering, grief. Sometimes it's failure in some area of your life where you thought it was going to go one way and it doesn't, and it all falls apart. Sometimes it's relational, being rejected by somebody, particularly for following Jesus. It could be all kinds of things. And as we get older, every one of us will experience the weakness of aging. And we will experience the weakness of our mortality. And death will approach all of us. If you're young, you'll feel like that's imaginary. But it's not. Just give it time. And if you're a Christian, then this will be your final experience of weakness. And just like all the one, all the other weaknesses, when you belong to, to Jesus Christ, and as you embrace Jesus Christ, then you'll find that even the bitterness of death will become an, the occasion of your closest intimacy with him. Because what will happen is, if you belong to Jesus, if you don't belong to Jesus, it's a different story. Let's talk about it, okay? But if you belong to Jesus, then as you die, you will lose every last vestige of strength and it will all go and all of your native strength will go and it will wane. But as your strength wanes, 
the power of Christ will wax strong. And it will wax infinitely strong and eternally strong. And you will spend all of eternity rejoicing, not in your own strength. You're never going to want to rejoice in your own strength. You will rejoice forever in the power of Jesus Christ. And that is your future if you belong to Jesus Christ. Christ's power will be made perfect in your weakness. So Emmanuel... Do not be satisfied with a form of godliness that denies its power. Don't do it. Be hungry. Be thirsty. Be greedy in a holy kind of way. And pray for more and more of the power of Christ. More of that intimacy with him that is so precious that it outweighs and transforms and redeems our weakness. And that will be the engine of our transformation. Amen.